Welcome to the Motor Mouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. This week we are joined by Martin Plowman, the British racing driver who has a very impressive CV, ranging from IndyCar and Indy Lights, LMP2 and winning the 24 Hours of Le Mans, to being current British GT champion, alongside friend and Strictly Come Dancing champion Kelvin Fletcher, who we featured as a guest right at the start of the Motormouth podcast journey. Plowey joined us to chat all about his rise up through the ranks, explains how he dealt with some incredibly tough moments in his career, to really excelling in the Motormouth's quiz. Thank you so much to you guys who continue to download and listen if you like it please do leave us a review it really helps us to get bigger enjoy welcome to episode 29 of the motormouth podcast before we introduce today's guest we have to bring in with no fanfare no salute no fireworks no essex related facts no large feet references just a quiet calm welcome to my co-host harry benjamin good afternoon is that it? That's it. Is that all I get this week? That's all get. I've, I, I have completely run dry of Essex-related facts, um, superlatives, everything. So this week you get nothing. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to move to a new place then so you can get some more facts. <laughs> um, I am, yes, I am fine. Um, mentally drained by this lockdown. Actually, so bad. All right. So I've been... I've been drinking probably a little bit more alcohol than I would normally do. I think everyone is, yeah. Because of lockdown. But it got so bad. Like, we finished... So this is our our second podcast that we recorded today. We did one in the morning and then finished at about midday, was it lunch? And I I went to get a Diet Coke and then there was a bottle of Disserano out and I was about to pour myself a Disserano and Coke. (laughs) And I was just like, no, Harry, wait, no, no, Harry. A, you're working. B, no, come on, get a grip. It's too early. Absolutely alcoholic. Well, I'm excited because um, this afternoon um, we are losing the children for a a little bit of time. Thank the Lord for the first time in however many weeks we've been stuck in lockdown. So we, uh, Chloe obviously can't drink, being preggers and all, um, but I intend to fill my boots with red wine, probably a few beers, um, whatever else I can find lying around the house. Oh, I'm excited for you. I'll mm. drink to that. Yeah. Oh, cheers. <laughs> um, anyway, enough of us rambling. Should we bring in today's guest? Absolutely. Let's do it. Today, we're joined by a man who may well top the charts of our most intelligent guests. Martin Plowman, otherwise known as Plowy, is a racing driver who speaks English, French and Italian. We have to go all the way back to 1996 to find him karting, where he was a race and championship winner. He was quickly recognised by the BRDC as a rising star and in 2006 completed his rookie Formula Renault season with Prima. Skip forward through Formula 3 Euro Series, a stint in the US, doing single-seaters, American Le Mans, WEC LMP2, winning the P2 class at the Le Mans 24-hour race, and competing in the Verizon IndyCar Series, Blancpain Endurance and United Sports Car Championships and most recently winning the class championships in British GTs alongside Strictly Come Dancing champ Kelvin Fletcher. We're delighted to welcome someone with one of the most impressive racing CVs we've ever seen. Martin Plowman, welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. Thanks guys, thanks for having me on the show. You're very uh, welcome. I, think I need to use my heart, man, because you just make me sound so much cooler than I really am. That, <laughs> that is a mega CV, though. I mean, as uh, out of all the racing people we've had on this show, um, that CV has to be right up there with the best of them. It's impressive. Oh, shoot, thank you. Then I think it makes, it makes me sound old because I've done a lot. That's all. Well, we we were actually saying um, before we came on the show, and Harry and I were just having a chat off off uh, off air that oh, in no. 1996, when you started karting, how old are you, Harry? Um, I was yet to be born. Exactly. Um, That's a so, terrifying oh thought. Wow. So yeah, don't want to make you feel <laughs> even more odd than that. Only one near off. Um, but yeah, so it is an impressive CV, uh, Martin. But 
how you know how did it all all start for you you know 1996 that was when you first got into karting how did the racing bug bite you was it in the family or were you just a fan and you know when did you want to get into that go-kart i don't know i think my my family was always big into racing but they, they could never afford it growing up um my, my parents were actually professional ballroom dancers, believe it or not. Oh. Wow. So kind of a funky, funky tie into Kelvin being, you know, Strictly Come Dancing champion. Yeah, that is amazing. And, you know, ballroom dancing. Um, but yeah, so when I was three years old, they bought me an, an all-terrain off-road go-kart, which wow. uh, I would tear around the field. And if, if you followed me on Instagram, I just posted a picture of it last night. Uh, they they put bricks on the uh, the pedals and I had a child safety seat inside the, you know, the cart seat so I could reach the pedals. And for years and years, I'll just pound around the field, just tearing up the grass. And, you know, to my grandma's horror, I, you know, I'd just drive through her plants and <laughs> bushes. Um, eventually, one day, um, they bought me a second-hand go-kart in a racing cart for my seventh birthday. And we'd go to the local track, Birmingham Wheels. It just became a family outing. It was something to do on the weekend. And then turn eight years old, that's the first time you can actually race officially. My dad had a cart and I had a cart, and we'd just go every weekend as a family and then one particular weekend um the, the conditions were changing you know wet, wet dry wet dry and my dad just couldn't mechanic for the both of us and he decided there and then that was it he was going to stop racing and just focus on me um but yeah it, it just became a way of life and i'm just so grateful that my parents sacrificed everything you know to get me into the sport and i, I know i wouldn't be where i am today without them and you know it's all because of that because of them and some impressive trophies in the background as well to go with it. Uh, a few. <laughs> I uh, actually found uh, 10 years of Carson trophies stuffed underneath my parents' uh, stairs. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> it's just like, oh, they're not important anymore. They take so too much room. So there are a few select ones in the background, but... Yeah, it's just kind of sad that, you know, 10 years of what you think were important times. Yeah, like, nah. stuff under a, 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 a staircase. Who were you racing against at that time? Are there any names that we'd know now that you were competing against in karting? Um, when I first started, my first year in karts, I once, okay, I need to use the word racing against very loosely. I was on the same track as, there's a few guys you might have heard of, like Lewis Hamilton. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah Hamley, those kind of guys, you know, uh, just... Yeah. They were a few years ahead of me. They had three or four years head start on me. So I was raw beginner. But there was one fun story, though. When um, racing at a, a club race in Birmingham Wheels, in practice, there was the, the great Lewis Hamilton. He was already on a pedestal, even in British karting. You know, 10 years old, 11 years old. People knew that he was headed for greatness already. But there's me, eight years old, Martin Plowman, chasing down Lewis Hamilton with the yellow helmet, catching him lap by lap by lap. And then eventually I passed him. Came into the pits, Anthony stormed over, you know, introduced himself with a very curious look. And he looked around the cart, you know, with his, his hand on his, uh, you know, his finger to his mouth, just looking around the cart. And he says to my dad, Do you do realize that's an 80cc engine, right? And, you know, it's a 60cc <laughs> class. <laughs> my dad had been sold some illegal engine oh, from no. overseas. Oh, like no. Like some dodgy deal. So of course I was going to be faster than him. I was racing an 80cc engine in the 60cc class. And there's you thinking, this is it. But, look look at me. I'm I'm hunting down the, the hottest property in motorsport. And, and exactly, yeah. you had no well, you weren't slower, that would have really been uh, an issue. That would be embarrassing, yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, um, so 2006 was the, the first year for, for single-seaters in, in racing. And that was the Formula Renault Italia season. 
season, if I'm uh, correct. So many different Formula Renault uh, spin-off championships over the years. But um, what what was that like? First rookie season in that, you know, going to the to Italy to do that season as well. Why why pick that championship? But it all came about because my final year in, in European karting, uh, we'd had a really good year in 2003, uh, finished in sixth in the World Championship. Um, you know, I was one of the top, you know, top 10 drivers in, in, in the world at that point. But then 2005, I believe it was, the start of the year, first race, first heat of the year, I had a pretty nasty accident. Um, I went into a fence backwards, got impaled on the fence. It was a pretty gory story. Um, Punctured lung, broken vertebrae, you so can name it. I was you, in a good way. You got impaled on the fence or the car? Oh, I did. <laughs> no, I did. Oh, um, my God. And they, God. the uh, ambulance crew didn't know us at the time because I had my rib protector on, but the rib protector was keeping pressure on the wound. So I was wound, I was literally winded, and they didn't know why. They took me to hospital, took the suit off, oh and I was straight down into, into the emergency room with no anesthetic, and there I was. I could hear my heart rate, and it was... Pretty life changing moment. So, uh, Christ. I, I could go into further detail, but that's a bit too graphic. Oh. But long story short, How 2005 was my point? last year in cuts. I was about 17. Oh my God. Wow. Was that, um, so I don't want to go into, I don't want to make, bring back horrible memories or go into gory detail, but when you have an injury like that, does, uh, it might be a stupid question, can you feel it or does the pain come later because of the shock or what was that like? The first 30 seconds, there was no pain. Um, I was literally just slumped in my seat and it was just a bit of a shock. Um, and then all of a sudden, it just hits you like, ouch, this <laughs> this really, I think, hurts. Uh, but what was really scary was not more than pain, was the inability to breathe. Like the winding was yeah. so bad. I was fighting for breath. And I've been winded before. And after 30 seconds, you relax and you can breathe again. But this was not going away. And and I really started to panic then. Yeah. And the the whole time in the ambulance, just lying there, just thinking, you know, just literally thinking this might be it. And wow. having an incident like that, that doesn't put you off racing at all. Did it? Did it ever cross your mind? Think actually, maybe, uh, maybe if if I, you know, if I can recover from this, I think I might just. I'll be out. You know, I'll be I'm, tapping I'm, out. You know, I might just go and get the day job at, behind a desk. <laughs> It's weird. I think racing drivers are not weird correctly because I was in the ambulance and Dino Chiesa, my, my team manager, was in the back of the ambulance with me. And, you know, obviously he was very concerned, but I looked up at him and I said to him, is the cart okay? Because oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I cared about. It was like, is the cart okay? Because we've got a race tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a mind of a racing driver right there. Wow. So big incident to sort of finish off your your, your karting uh, days. And then and then you recover from that. How long did it take to recover before you then stepped foot into this Formula Renault car? It was a good two months, two or three months I was out, but then I did manage to finish the season, thankfully. And, um, Dino purposely took me back to that same track and it was a flat out corner where I had the accident. And he said to me, if you don't go flat out within mm-hmm. the first four laps, I'm not letting you sit in the cart again. So that was pressure right there. So I went out, first lap was very timid and second lap just closed my eyes and floored it and went flat out. And uh, the rest is history. But um, wow. So yeah, I finished the, the season carts. It was a good year, but of course, very compromised. But at the end of that year, I was invited to a shootout for the Toyota Young Driver Program. So at the time, they were taking kids from karts to, to Formula One. So I was invited out to Vallelonga with five other kids of my age in my generation. And I was picked. I was one of the two drivers to, to get selected. And I still remember the, it was a fax. I got a fax. It wasn't even an email. 
Just, like, fa- um, Harry, just to clarify, a fax is like a bit of paper that comes <laughs> yes, via the OS. Yeah, is, yeah, yes. Yeah. I've heard. I've heard rumours. <laughs> <laughs> and it came through to my my mum's office, and she called me up because I was working for my my parents at the time, you know, in in their business. And they said, well, "Martin, you've got some bad news. You've got to come to the office." So I walked up to the office, and she showed me a piece of paper, and it was a contract offer with Toyota for ten years. Wow to take me from karting to Formula One. And it, it felt like Christmas. It was just like the best news uh, you could ever have as a young driver because, of course, I'm very fortunate that my parents were able to get me in the car, into karts and they worked seven days a week to grow a business to try and find a way to fund this, this hobby that became a profession. But there was no way that we could go further, really. And I mean, they were sacrificing everything, mortgaging the house, taking loans, you name it. They, yeah. they were... It wasn't just handing a bit of money. It became their way of life. So to be given this lifeline by Toyota was a godsend. So what, what year are we at here? This was, I'm trying to think back now, so long ago. You know. uh, uh, yeah. I want to say it was 2006, 2007. What were the dates that Toyota were in F1? That They left when? Mid-2000s, late 2000s? 2009 was their last year, wasn't 2009. it? 2009. So it, that's the thing, in a contract like that, is it, you know, I can't imagine they can promise you a Formula One drive. How does it work? Are they, you know, what what is involved in a contract like that? Is it just certain amounts of, uh, you know, you have access to facilities, or you know, or does it say, you know, if you're good, we'll stick you in the F1 car? It was so vague, if I'm honest. I mean, it was just ten years, and it was spelled out. So they they gave a budget. You know, literally, it was like an open checkbook for the Formula One wow. years. Um, but I, it was basically me and another kid called Henke Walshmit, who's not racing anymore, uh, and we would. We were put up in Italy because that was they, they chose Prema Power Team as the chosen team, which is why we had to live in Italy. So we had uh, our flats taken care of. And we had opposing flats. We would work out together, train together, go to the you know workshop together, travel together, and it was sort of like a gladiatorial competition that we were fighting for our life in mm-hmm. a way. You know, this is our livelihood, and we're fighting for it. Like just stick two boys in a cage, and you know we were just you know trying to make a career and. Yeah, I guess in a way it pushed each other to new limits, but it became very, very toxic very quickly because all of a sudden, you know, you've got two kids that, you know, they're chasing their dreams and then you spend every minute of every day together. And it got to the point where things were just, it wasn't like a healthy competition. It was like rooted in hatred. Like yeah. we hated each other like more mm-hmm. than, than anything. And you take it to the gym, everything became a competition. You know, we'd work out with the same trainer and we'd play squash. And I don't know what the rules of squash are, I forget. But you know, when you get trapped in the corner and you can't hit the ball because your opponent's yeah. blocking you, you can say something and then you replay the point. No, he would hit, go to hit the ball with me standing there and smack me on the ankle. Yeah. And then one day it just erupted and the trainer had to like jump in the, the ring and separate us. And this was two days before we go to Monza, before we get on, you know, strap our helmets on and go racing. So uh, looking back now, it's just insane, you know. Um, you know, it's... One, on one hand, I was very grateful, but on the other hand, it wasn't a pleasant time because right. you literally, you never had any personal time to, to be happy or, you know, do your personal life. It was literally day in, day out, you were fighting for your for your future. Did you feel a bit like, I guess, a bit of a product at that stage because, you know, Toyota are going, oh, here's, here's a contract, we'll get you to Formula One, but this is where you're going to live, this is what you're going to do, this is how you're going to act, this is, you know, this is the races you're going to take part in. Did it feel at all like, you know, your your destiny had been taken out of your own hands or at the time did it not feel like that? Did it just feel like a great opportunity? 
Yeah, it was a bit of both, to be honest. I think I was very grateful and it did feel like I was given a, a chosen path and a very focused path, what to do. But on the other hand, yeah, I, I felt just like a product. Mm. There was one time where um, you know, been a bit homesick, I wanted to fly home for the weekend. And the team told me, no, I couldn't because I needed to file a holiday request for Germany <laughs> to fly home. And this was like a half, no, an hour flight to East Billings. But, I, but, you know, they couldn't even allow me to fly home because I had to, you know, send a holiday holiday request form. Yeah. God. Wow. And so how long were you with Toyota then? And how, how far up the ladder did, were they able to help you progress? So it was just two years in Formula Renault. Um, you know, things had gone well. Um both years, where well, I tied my teammate to the point, literally, we were identical in points both years. Uh, and the second year, again, I, I had three podiums and, and he had one win, but that was his only podium. And eventually, I think it, it came down to you know win-win ratios. And, uh, you know, and luckily or unluckily, I guess, uh, he was chosen and I got the call. I think it was December 30th. I got a fax again hey. uh, to say that contracts have been terminated. But, um, wow, brutal. Honestly, I don't think it was a uh, a disappointment. Yes, at the time, financially, we were, it was career over because we had no funding to go forward. But in a way, I felt such a relief to be out of that program. It was it wasn't a good time in my life. I don't think. Where mm. did where did he end up then? He so he stayed on the program. Yeah, so he went did another year in Formula Three, which was the next step. Uh, did a couple of F one tests, and then. He disappeared. He wow. literally just fell off the face of the earth. And I, I, don't, I can't even tell you what he's doing now. God, amazing. So after the end of your contract, it gets terminated. And I guess things are looking pretty bleak at that point. How do you pull yourself back from that kind of scenario? Oh, wait, they get bleaker. Don't worry. Oh, <laughs> no. oh, oh God, so, I can't. Hang on. Um, so we've already had you being speared. And then then, yeah. then we've been dropped by Toyos. <laughs> <laughs> we are, are going to end this on a very positive oh, note, I promise you. God. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, so December 30th, really, no funding, no nothing, no no obvious future. Um, I had a call to go to, to Germany to meet with uh, Volkswagen because they were starting their, you know, their junior program. Um, went there and, and did a test and nailed the test, and they offered me a one-year deal in their, in their junior program. Oh. Uh, I was given a choice between Signature uh, Motorsport yeah. or RC Motorsport, and I'd done the test with RC, and I was happy with the Italians. I was comfortable and I chose RC. Fast forward six months and it turned out to be the worst decision of my life because Signature with Mortara, like you had on earlier, was oh. regularly the top five driver. And then the RC racing boys were 21st, 22nd, 23rd every weekend. So I went from one bad situation to another. And oh, no. Just like, like, when is this going to end? So 2008... Is this where it gets better? Please say it gets better. It does get better. It does get better. (laughs) So, yeah, so we we didn't finish the season. It was not not a good year. But this is when uh, Dan Weldon came into it. Um, Dan Weldon, uh, Dan Weldon's godfather, worked with my dad. And as you know, Dan was tearing up America. He was a living legend, you know, 85 minute winner. And he'd been keeping an eye on my career for a long time and he says you know stop messing around in europe get your kid to europe uh, to america and that's where america came in right you know he managed to open the doors for me over there he got me a test in a formula indy lights car and my parents sent me on a one-way ticket to america so you've gone out wow. to the states on your own completely on my own and and so how old are you at this point 
I was uh, 19 going on 20. Okay, so fine. Sort of reasonable age to, to be to be sent packing. For a one-way ticket to America, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The American yeah. dream. So you're off, you're off for the American dream, really. Yeah. You've got your Indie Lights test. And is that all you had in the bag? You just had to go there and, and make it work? Pretty much. Um, you know, that was such an exciting time. You know, I've had two or three really down years, you know, from going from being at the pinnacle of karting with the dream of Formula One, chasing that Formula One dream, and then just kind of having it all tarnished and jaded in a way, like going to America was such a relief. It, it just felt like home the second I touched down. And, and yeah, it was like a rebirth in a way. Like yeah. This is it. I'm going to make my, my life here. My career is going to be here. And this is going to, where it's going to happen. And, and how did that first season go? So this is, I think, 2009, um, where Indy Lights, um, your rookie season with Panther. How, how was that first experience? Uh, I know Indy Lights, they, they, they do the ovals, right? So um, you must have had your eyes opened by racing around in circles at ridiculous speeds, even in the Indy Lights cars. Yeah, a funny story there. So it was actually Cargo in 2008, the last round of the championship. So we'd flew out early to meet the team and see what it was all about. And seeing the Indy cars on the Chicago Oval, they're racing three wide, you know, five deep. I was blown away. So I was on the phone to my mom saying, yeah, yeah, this is exactly what I really want to do this. I want to do this. And then my dad was on the other end of pit lane on the phone to my mom saying, no, no, we need to bring him home now. We can't do this. Yeah, it's, it, <laughs> it, it looks terrifying. Is it right on a on a really sort of layman basic level that for, for people who aren't perhaps familiar with with American racing that Indy Lights is sort of maybe an equivalent to like Formula Two? It's it's the junior level below from the Formula One. IndyCar almost like it's the Formula One of America. Indy Lights is like the Formula Two. Is that is that right in saying that in terms of sort of junior uh, tier motorsport? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so really Indy Lights was like the finishing school as you were, you know, for IndyCar. So we'd travel on the same circuits as IndyCar and it really was the proving ground. And a lot of times the teams from IndyCar wouldn't take outside drivers. They would only, you know, cherry pick the best from Indy, oh. Indy Lights because of the Indy experience. I mean, yeah. yeah, there's so many talented road course races, but you've got to have experience on the ovals because they are so um, like finicky, you know, you've got to respect them. And unless you've got experience, you can't just jump in there and, and do well. Yeah. I think it's and stepping into an Indy car for the first time. Are there any, you know, what, what are the big differences to what, what you'd already experienced before in sort of European formula single seat cars? Well, the first time it jumped in the Indy car, my gosh, it, it, it blew me away. Literally my eyes got thrown to the back of my head and you think you understand what power is, but as soon as you like hit that throttle, it was like, there's more and there's more and there's more. And then you're just, it's like light walk speed and then and you just you, you just have this biggest smile on your face and it takes a long time to get used to that and for the first five laps it was just about speed <laughs> but yeah it takes once you get used to it it all slows down and it yeah becomes normal again did you have any issues adjusting to the ovals or did you take to it okay well we was testing at homestead that was my first test and i always like to be challenged so i said to the guy like uh, Dylan Battistini was their current driver and he, he'd done really, very well that year. And I said to the team, how long did it take Dylan to get up to speed? And, he, and they told me, yeah, he took him a good two days, you know, 40 or 50 laps before he was flat out. I said to myself, I'm going to do it in 10. So I went out first few laps, you know, build up speed nice and nice. And then lap eight, a bit more, just a bit of a lift. Lap nine, a bit less of a lift. Lap 10, put my left foot over my right foot and just held it flat, kind of winced as it went to turn one, did the whole lap flat, turn three, turn four, came across the line and then came in the pits. And the team says, is everything okay? Is the car okay? I said, yeah, I just need a moment to get out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I scared myself that much. 
insane. I mean, they, they do travel at a ridiculous rate of knots. And then, of course, you you did, skipping around a little bit, but you did take part in uh, one of the most famous races in the world, the Indy 500. That must have been a, a spectacular thing to be involved with. Yeah, it was incredible. I mean, I, I watched a video the other day of um, Taps you know, playing with the, the, you know, the lone trombone, and it was in front of an empty track, obviously, with lockdown. But I can tell you that silence is the same whether there's it's an empty track or 400,000 people in the stands. It's so emotional because you have to understand what it means. You know, we're there to to remember those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice, you know, for our freedom. And you're going through so much, so much emotion before the start of the race. And then you throw on all this extra layer of emotion on top. It, it takes a strong man not to not to cry. Yeah, yeah. And um, the actual race itself. So you you came home in twenty third, which you know for those listening, that is that is no mean feat. Um, there's a lot of cars that take part in that. And there's a lot of drivers I think that do the Indy five hundred as a, as a, almost a one off, don't they? Um, but what what was the experience of actually being on track and and pounding round and round and round for all that time and then how did it feel to finally actually finish the race it was it was like a process i mean indy is something you've got to respect you can't go in there guns blazing and and just think you're the greatest gift you know on earth you, you've got to work with your team engineers and it's a step-by-step building process because one small slip and you're in the wall and your whole month is over you know, it's the three hundred thousand pound repair or you could even risk your life so really you've got to go out there with a process methodology if i said that right um and, and respect it it is one place that doesn't like to mess with yeah you know but the race itself was just eye-opening i mean it's such an experience you know coming across the line to take the start you can hear the fans roaring and the whole time you've just got to keep your emotions in check and not be that guy who takes out half the field on that one yeah, yeah, amazing. You've had some amazing, you know, ups and, and some incredible lows throughout your career. Do you, do you think that's helped you with sort of your your mental resilience to being, you know, a motorsport driver? Because it is a tough career choice for anybody. But do you think that you've, you know, those experiences have helped you become a bit more resilient? Yeah, absolutely. I think the path to success, you know, many people will tell you it's never straightforward. And with every setback, there came a pivot in my career. So obviously with Toyota, it went to Formula 3. And then when that failed, the pivot then was to go to America. And then, of course, you know, we went to do the American thing. And then I was this close to becoming a full-time IndyCar driver in 2011. Uh, I even had my name in the entry list for the first round in, in that year with Dale Coyne. I went and did the test, my first test. I was quicker than Bourdais. You know, it was, I couldn't have done any better. And a week before the first round, I got a call from the team owner to say I'd been replaced by a guy bringing a large check Ugh. and that's just the way it is it's, it's the business so you yeah. can't be upset about it you know i felt i'd done all i could and that's just the way it is so you can't be upset about it your like your pivot your outlook is <laughs> astonishing i mean you've you really have had some some tough times i mean i suppose as many drivers do it is an up and down roller coaster kind of career i suppose you sort of buy into that but um amazing that you keep bouncing back when, when you look back at the states what what was your highlight of that period of your career well there's been so many. I think I've got, I've got to say this because or else my wife is listening. So my highlight has probably been marrying my wife now. Tick, uh, check, oh. tick that box. <laughs> tick, tick that box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, getting to race at the 500 is up there. Um, it's something you always aspire to do. And, and just to be a part of it, it's, it's a big part of history. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's so much to be thankful for, you know, my experiences over there. But then, like I said, you know, that that rejection of getting into IndyCar, that pivoted me into the world of sports cars. Yeah. You know, Patrick Long, um, Porsche factory driver, was a good friend of mine. And, and he's the one who actually introduced me to David Henemar Hansen. He was a very wealthy amateur driver racing in P2. And he needed a, a quick young pro driver. And here it was, hello, yeah. <laughs> before the first race. And I'm, I'm out of a drive. So I went to Sebring, tested it, you know, and nailed, nailed the test. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm going from, you know, IndyCars to racing in the American Le Mans series. And right. I had a really good year, really fun year with David. You know, we was on the podium virtually every race, a um, couple of wins, podiums um, in pole positions. But what really was the turning point for me was the final race at Road Atlanta. That was when all the European teams from European Le Mans came over to race with the, the boys from America. And the consensus was that Europeans were the best of the best, but they came over and the American teams were one, two, and three in qualifying. Mm -hmm. And I missed out on qualifying on pole by two thousandths of a second to a guy called Olivia Pla, who was the factory driver for Oak Racing. And we were racing in the customer Oak team. So Jacques Nicolet was there and was very impressed. He came to me and he offered me the chance to drive in the World Championship team the following year in 2013. And then that turned out to be my greatest year in racing today. So um, I guess that leads us nicely on to uh, one of the most famous races in the world, um, if not the most famous race in the world, the Le Mans 24 hour. Um, tell us a bit about that. It's it's for me, Le Mans is, is up there with the Indy 500. It's, it's such an incredible event, you know, the history behind it. And if I'm really totally honest, I, I didn't know a great deal about it before I even got involved with it. So I was completely deer in headlights that entire month. <laughs> Everything from the, the spectacle to get into the track, the the fanatic fans, the the driver parade. You know, there's like a hundred thousand people lining the streets for the driver parade, and I'm a quite a I don't know a, a very fan and interactive kind of guy. So I, I got off the car. And this is where I made a big mistake. I got <laughs> off the car to sign a few autographs for kids. The car left me. It took off. <laughs> so through, so I walked the entire five mile of Le Mans signing autographs, and I didn't get back to the. <laughs> the starting point until three hours later. <laughs> so if, oh I, if I ever do Le Mans again, I'm not getting off the car. <laughs> you can imagine all the other drivers like slapping their foreheads. Like, oh, what's he doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. What's he <laughs> doing? <laughs> and then tell us about oh, yeah, the, the the race itself. So you, you've gone into this. Was was there? A, 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 did you think there's a realistic opportunity to win? I don't know. I think the mindset that we had within the team, we were, we were very grounded. We we didn't really think about winning. Of course, you know, you, you go in with the intent of winning, but we all had a job to do. And we were so focused on our jobs that the, the result would come if we did our job. So we had that kind of quiet confidence, but without that focus on the result, we were just, we had a job to do. We had to just focus on that job because any slip in concentration and it would all be over. So it wasn't until probably the last half an hour when it, when I was watching my teammate take the final stint, it was like, Oh my God, we could win this thing. And that's when the anxieties crept up and the heart rate was at 180 feet a minute for the last hour or so. And, and I, I just couldn't contain it. Sat on the floor, just tried to keep my stuff together because it was all coming real and we were going to win the Le Mans 24 hours. God, that must be a, a weird thing to say that you've won the Le Mans 24 hours in, in, in your class, but a re remarkable achievement. And that must be just during that race alone, there must be a huge amount of highs and lows and different emotions that you feel um, and, and sleep 
problems. You know, I guess you where do you sleep? You sleep in the back of the garage? Do you disappear to a a, a motorhome for a couple of hours? What's it like being part of that whole circus? So we had a, a full time trainer at the time, and and so he would literally micromanage us. So get out the car, he would shove a drink in your face. You know, measure how much you you drank, measure your weight, take you to the uh, there's like a, a cabin in the back of the garage. You know, and and the team had even hired one of these cryo cryogenic chamber thing. So we're standing wow. there with nothing but our underpants on and that'd be frozen to like 180 degrees below, whatever. And, and it's meant to like cool your core temperature down to help you rest and recover. It didn't, I don't think it did anything. It just made me really cold. <laughs> <laughs> but it's something, something we had to do. Um, but anybody who says they sleep can, can sleep during a 24 hour race. I, I really envy them because I could not sleep at all. The, the entire 36 hours before race and after race, I was so wired, just wanted to be part of the race, you know, know what was going on. And even like the anxiety of like knowing what's what, you know, getting back in the car, I just couldn't sleep. So mm. I was, I was wired the entire time, but it was such a weird race. You know, that was the race. Unfortunately we lost, um, Alan Simonson and we found out about five minutes before I got in the car. So to add another layer of stress, here I am in my, my biggest race of my career, it's raining. I haven't been in the car for like two days. We just lost one of our drivers and now I'm about to strap in and get in the car and you've got to block all of this out of your head. Uh, yeah. You're driving that pit lane and your only thought is don't forget to switch off the pit limiter. You know, that was, you've got to just be so mentally resilient to everything that's going on and just switch off. Yeah. yeah it's, well, what an incredible feat as well, just to, to get through all that. And, you know, one of the, the, the biggest races on, on the planet in a 24 hour Le Mans. And let's, move forward a bit now and, and back we sort of we're making our way back to Europe and uh Blancpain and, and sort of a return to Europe and, and McLaren racing in a 650s uh including racing around Nürburgring one of the one of the I think one of my favorite tracks ever um talk us through your move back to Europe then man and what, what was the the journey focusing on now sort of you were looking at sort of GT cars and, and that type of racing now yeah so post IndyCar um I had a big offer to come back to to England to, to lead a, a, an amateur team, a gentleman driver who had a big vision of going from uh, GT cars, British GT, all the way to Le Mans. And it was a, a very good offer. It was long-term deal. And at the time, I didn't have a lot going for me in America. And, and it was just the perfect time for me. You know, it was a good chance to, to sink my teeth into something long-term. And I'd really got passion for working with, with amateur drivers. You know, I, I feel like I've got a good way of communicating what I do to, to amateurs or beginners. And it just was really excited me. I wanted to be a part of something bigger and, and not just be a driver. I wanted to be a bigger part of the team. So I, I did grab the opportunity with both hands. And again, I said to my wife, I said, you know, what do you think we should do? And she says, if you believe in it, let's do it. So we packed up our entire life and we moved to England. Wow. And this is when you, is this when you started in Blancpain? Yeah. So this was about the time in Blancpain. So I, had, I did a, a year with uh, McLaren. Uh, in, in blank pan as well as dovetailing the the season in british gt with with richard taffender right okay and Bl- blanc pan is a tough one isn't it because a huge amount of cars on track massively competitive quite a difficult series to make your mark in i'd imagine oh very yeah the first year in, in blank pan endurance with it with nissan you know we had a couple of good results you know we had uh, uh i think it was like a fifth place and a couple of eighth places and i don't particularly think fifth place is very good but when you have a bad year with a bad team and, and then 25th, when you feel you've got everything out of the car, but the BOP is against you, 
if you know you look back and think oh actually fifth place wasn't that bad actually because you've got yeah. 60 guys all extremely talented in, in in machinery that is supposed to be you know balanced it's, it's an extremely tough championship yeah yeah really tough and let, let's fast forward then into british gts um you've seen a huge amount of success in british gts um you're currently partnered with kelvin fletcher who we all know from strictly come dancing fame and uh we had Actually, him on i the, know him from the motor mouth podcast it, well um, i don't know number yeah, you, it was that's why that's why i've heard of him exactly yeah. that, so <laughs> that was episode number two i think it was wait yeah, wait back when we should get him on again um so presumably i'm i'm assuming you met kelvin through coaching and and then is is that how the process went then you became teammates yeah so i got drafted into coach kelvin you know when he was racing in touring cars he was having a bit of a tough time that year and getting a lot of unfair criticism because people forget that he is an amateur and this was his second i think full season in a competitive championship and you're going up against guys like jason plater have been mm. racing touring cars you know longer than i've been alive you know and, and it's such a difficult series it's the pinnacle you know one of the pinnacles in you know, domestic racing and yeah i mean he was qualifying 20th 21st whatever it was but the pace was there i mean he wasn't that far off the really quick guys so when they drafted me in they they were expecting me to like tear apart his driving and reinvent the wheel but when i saw the data i actually realized actually this kid can drive he's good not just amateur good he's actually he's got the right skill set to be a pro driver what he didn't have he didn't have the structure he didn't have the the knowledge of how to harness that yeah. talent. And that's where I came in. Just gave him a bit of structure, told him how to do a track walk, you know, how do you prepare for a weekend and actually just rein in a bit of that speed because he was going in a bit too quick into some corners, you know, going in five meters too late, getting on a power fraction too late and losing two tenths down the next straight. Mm. But by breaking five meters earlier, you know, get the car rotated sooner, get the power a fraction earlier and you gain a tenth for two tenths. And, and it came that weekend, he was only, I think, a tenth or two tenths off his teammate, and he made a small mistake in qualifying. But had he nailed that lap, he would have been sixth on the grid. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive, uh, actually, it isn't there. it? And then from from coaching to being his teammate, how did that come about? So at the time, I was managing uh, Ultra Tech Racing, so it was myself and Richard, who was the the money man in the team, and we were running a second car, and we needed a second pro driver. But really, we didn't like the idea of bringing in another pro and paying a pro. So we thought, you know, why not bring in somebody like Kelvin? Kelvin was hot on my list of drivers to get involved with because he was talented and was a great guy. And, you know, he just he just ticked all the boxes. So I convinced Richard that we needed Kelvin to come in as as a as another driver. And, uh, and he was in the second car for the first year. And then the following year, Richard, the, the, the businessman, he had to step away from racing but he had still paid for the whole year. So that's wow. when me and Kelvin got put together and it was just a match made in heaven. So first year with Kelvin was 2018, is that right? As full, as full on teammates. Yeah. Right, 2018. That's right, yeah. And second in class. And then 2019, you guys won your class um, and amazing scenes. Harry and I followed it closely. How did that feel to um, to finally find yourself championship winners? In fact, it felt like a relief. You know, that's the year pre- previous. We felt robbed because we had a few things go against us, a few, you know, un- unlucky failures that were no one's fault. It's just it's just racing. But, you know, we felt robbed in a way. So to get the championship win that following year was like redemption. It, it was like destiny in a way. You know, we, we did everything possible. We put everything forward. You know, we put everything forward. And uh, 
it was such a relief. It was more of a relief than it was satisfaction. Is there is there ever a concern that you've um, that your apprentice will become master? <laughs> Frankenstein and Frankenstein yeah. monster. <laughs> every every single time on track, it's, it's a bit weird, you know. I've been racing, you know, 20, 22 years, and I never go into a session thinking, "Yeah, I'm good." I always think, "Oh, what if I'm slow?" And it's that fear of failure that I think is my driving force. Yeah. I could be at the local Daytona karting center going up against, you know, local plumbers or whatever, and they're they're like the the local hot shoes, and they they've invited me down for a bit of a laugh. And I'm sitting on the grid in qualifying and I'm thinking, oh my God, what if, what if they're quicker than me? Yeah. And this, <laughs> this is like a non-consequential race and I've got that same fear. Yeah. And I go out and smash him by two seconds, but it never goes away. Every time, it's always that same fear. Has, uh, well, yeah. has Kelvin um, dragged you onto the dance floor yet? No, no, no. My parents <laughs> have failed for the last 20 years. Uh, no, he's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, so, uh, he wasn't coming to you then for any uh, any advice when he took to the Strictly Dance or given your ballroom uh, heritage? And he, not me personally, but he did come to my parents, yeah. <laughs> oh, he did? <laughs> yeah, a couple of little tips, you know, like pre, pre, pre-show pre tips. On yeah, oh, but, brilliant. But once he got with OT, though, no, OT was a great coach. Oh, she, she's fantastic. Listen, um, it's, uh, it's hit the 40-minute mark, which means it is time to hand over to my esteemed colleague and introduce you, Ploughy, to Motormouths. With a brand new theme tune as well. Ploughy, welcome to Motormouths, the hardest quiz in motorsport. Um, I have a few clips to play you and a couple of questions as well um, to go with them. And, uh, <laughs> and within each clip, they're all about you and your career. So hopefully that should give you an advantage, but it doesn't always work out that way. Um, <laughs> so uh, basically I'm going to play you some clips, tell me a few things about them. And uh, it's three points for each clip. At the moment, there are 13 points up for grabs and in the top of our overall leaderboard is Brendan Hartley with 12 and a half points. And as this is season three, the season three leaderboard is currently topped uh, by three people, all equal, uh, with uh, Eduardo Mortara, Crofty from Sky F1 and Will Buxton all tied with 11 points at number one. So if you can get 11, you'll be joint leader in season three. But as we discussed before, anything is better than Karun Chantal yeah, on three and a half. But we really need a new overall leader. I've had enough of Brendan Hartley being on top. I've so if you could get full points, so that'd be great. 13. Yeah. Okay. Here we are then. Um, clip number one. Here it comes. Oh, Martin Plowman, the number 41 car, the AJ Foyt car, up Ooh. and over. Oh my Whoa. goodness. That's why the wing is off. They were both very lucky. They were both very lucky. So, Plowy, what is going on there? You had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> oh, no. Painful memories. So that was 2014 Indy GP, the race before the 500. Uh, it was a late race restart, about 35 to go. I'd just been hosed by the safety car. We'd been running really well. The safety car came out at the worst possible time, which shuffled me to the back. So back in 30th place, team says, All right, we've got to push hard. We've got to go, go, go. So restart, I made a big move down the inside of... Um, Marco Andretti um, Joseph Newgarden went to the outside of him pushed us both towards the inside I braked hard you know, on the marbles, locked up the rear last thing you know I'm flying backwards into the inside of the left hander closing my eyes thinking oh my god I'm going to hit somebody, I'm going to hit somebody flew up over the inside of the curb and luckily all I did was hit Frank Montana's rear wing <laughs> <laughs> but the best part was that it landed, they got me restarted 
came back into the pits before I got lapped, fueled up, said, you know, fueled up the fuel, you know, new set of tires, carried on, rejoined the back of the pack, and now I was fueled up to the end of the race. So the team rolled the dice and they said, right, we need you to save fuel like like crazy. So I was saving fuel that, you know, like 50%, you know, throttle lifts, big lifts down the straight. Five laps to go, I'm in ninth place. And then two laps to go, the suspension failed. Eventually. Oh, and God. Karma oh. was restored because I think it would have been bad if I had a top 10 finish after taking somebody out like that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, it was a, 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 a very well, a spectacular sort of incident going up over the, over the curbs on the inside. But yes, that has got you three points and an incredibly strong start uh, from you, Ply. Absolutely yes. full marks. Come on. Okay, We're on track here. Up, We're on though. track. Let's go to clip number two. Have a listen. I knew that to beat Hinch today, I, I had to do 40 perfect laps, and that's what I was focusing on. I, uh, I nearly threw it away on lap two going into to turn four. I decided to break myself and uh, very, very nearly, nearly came unstuck there. After that, I started to settle down and just got into a rhythm. Hmm. Hmm. Tough one, that. That was 2009. Uh, and that I think was my first win in America. Ooh, in Indy Lights. Is that I your final? Hang on, is 2009 your final answer? Oh no, it's not. Not that I'm helping at no, all. 2009 was with Panther. To 2010 was with Andretti Course and AVS Corsa. Uh, yeah, so 2010, lock it in. L- locked in. Lock yeah, it final in. answer. Final answer. I can tell you that is one point for 2010. You are correct. Can I get a location, please? Come on, please get it. It was uh, mid-Ohio. Mid yes. Absolutely spot on. And that is you chatting about your first win after beating James Hinchcliffe um, in mid-Ohio in 2010. Well done. Yes. Three points in the bag yet again. I thought you, that would be a tough one to get because it was a bit of an obscure interview. But okay, let's move on to your... I've got a couple of questions after this final clip that we're going to play. Here we go. I've been feeling a lot more nervous today than, than I, ha- I have done in a long time. Um, you always have those pre-race nerves, which are natural. But today there's been a lot more just because of what's at stake. You know, it's such a huge day and we're so close to achieving our goal of winning. <laughs> I feel like that was recent. Yes. <laughs> yes oh, no. Um, oof. Was that Donington, 2019? Oh, yes. Yes. Absolutely correct. Oh my god, we could not get a new leader. Oh my god, um, I'm genuinely excited we're talking about wrapping up the championship. I yeah, think. yeah, um, yeah, in British GT. Yeah, absolutely. That is yeah. three points on the board, Donnie, in 2019. This is where it could go wrong, though, because this next one is not easy. Yeah, we've got two two more questions for you now. No more clips, just two questions. So, question number four: How many points did you score in British GT in 2019? Oh my gosh, 2019. Ooh, this is going to be a wild guess. Should we, what about if we, are we allowed to do like a, if, we're, within, yeah, if, we, if you're within, there. you know, I'll allow five, know, 10 either way. 10, okay, good. I'm going to say 105. This <gasps> is pro-am or overall points though. Well, uh, uh, I've got, what, so your, give, give me your answer again. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say 105. 105. Okay. That's so the answer I have is 98.5. It's close enough. It's close enough. Ooh. And because you're within 10, I'm going to give you the full three yes. points. Yes. 
<laughs> Whoa, okay, right. Well, this is where... Get the party streamers ready. You could take the lead, the oh overall God. lead, if you can get this question right, and I think you will well, get he, this one right. Brendan Hartley must have been top for the last, like, for the last seven weeks, eight so. weeks. No, I don't he, know. He was the first one we did under lockdown, I'm pretty sure. Yes, so, that's right. And that's been going on for near on two months now. Okay, bonus point, bonus question. I'm about to jump off my chair. <sighs> All right. What is the name of Kelvin Fletcher's Strictly Come Dancing partner? Oh, this is an easy one. That's O.T. Mabuse. Yeah! Yes! Absolutely. Yes! Spot on. Right, I'll do the maths anyway. Do the maths, but you are top. That that's that, And that's top overall. This is that not... That is top. You're, you're overall, not... full points, thir- a full 13 points. You are the first person yes, to get that. First person. Wow. Uh, Talk about ups and downs in your career. I'm pretty sure this is one of the highlights. That's the peak. You've made <laughs> this it. This is way up there. Do I, do I get a trophy? Uh, yes. Oh, it's, you know um, what we, do? We, we need to send you a motor mouth cap, really, don't we? Yeah. Uh, I'll take that. <laughs> Kelvin's got one. Just rob his. Yeah. Wow. Well done. So that is 30. And you're, you know, you're not even, you're half a point in the lead from Brendan Hartley. He was 12 and a half overall. But even in season three, you're way ahead because oh. second place is on 11. So you've got points in the bag. Oh, that Dominated. Dominating. <laughs> Absolutely dominating. That's made my well, day. Thank you, Plowy, for playing Motor Mouse. You just made the hardest quiz in motorsport look easy. Um, well done. That's a, a huge relief to have Brendan Hartley knocked off the leaderboard. He's been there for far oh. too long. Um, right, let's bring it back to you. Um, <laughs> now, um, motorsport, we know you're a very quick racing driver. Um, you're into your golf, you're cycling, running. What's your biggest talent? What are you best at outside of the racetrack? Crickets. Oh, cricket. <laughs> oh, no, not cricket. Crickets. Like silence. Oh, crickets. Nothing. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh, I was like cricket. What an unusual one. That's very good. Cricket, but no, yeah, you can't really play uh, that. Like, I, I would love to say golf, but golf hates me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a love-hate relationship. You know, one day I can go out and shoot in the mid eighties. Next day I'm shooting 110. So yeah, similar uh, to me. Golf's a passion. It's not. It's not. It's not something I'm particularly good at. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't really have many good things that you know that i'm good at i i tend to be very compulsive you know obsessive compulsive guy so i, I get a hobby i'm all in and for six months i get moderate you know moderately good at it get bored of it and move on to something else so yeah. I, I never actually focus more than that you know and to become you know good at something okay then well I'm another so one for you that we always ask the follow-up question for um have you got any hidden talents <laughs> Ooh. How are you in the kitchen? Are you a dab uh, hand and as a chef, or perhaps... not bad actually? Not bad. I'm like a secret chef. I, mm. I don't claim to be very. I don't claim to be a cook. But when given the task, you know, to do something, then yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good in the kitchen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. We'll take that. Nice. Okay. Um. All right. Uh, so we just have a, some few more quick random fire questions at you. Um. You've done a lot of different racing series, as, we, as we've covered. What is the long-term goal going on from here? Obviously, you know, we're in a bit of a crazy world right now where none of us can really do anything. But, you know, are, are you looking ahead at the future? What, what do you want to go on to achieve? Is there anything you've got your eye on? There's still a couple of races, you know, big bucket list items, you know, like racing at Bathurst, you know, would be incredible. Yeah, great race. You know, I'd love to get back to Le Mans and have another shot there. Mm. Um, but doing it on the journey with Calvin to me is more important right now because I always believe that that life is a journey and it's about the people you take with you. You know, these trophies you see in the world, they don't, don't mean anything. It's all about the, the things that happened along the way. So to get to experience this journey with Calvin, like through, through his eyes, you know, he's on a beginning of his journey. So I'm getting to experience that new, fresh, 
enthusiasm all over again. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing where things go with Kelvin and in where racing takes us. But on the on the side hustle, we're we've just started our own junior racing team. So this wow, year we cool. have four drivers lined up for the Mazda MX-5 Super Cup, and honestly, lockdown happened at probably the best and the worst time because not that you'd ever wish this on anybody, but I was so overwhelmed going into the season, you know, getting ready for British GT, buying and uh, preparing for new cars, you know, pretty much single-handedly with lots of, you know, a bit of help here and there. My parents came in and, and they rescued me at the end because I was drowning and, and without their help, I would not have been ready for the first race, you know, in, in the series. So a uh, big thank you to them. Uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. I really want to get into team ownership and this year was going to be the year where it, it, it just took off. You know, we had an idea in, I think it was December, uh, where we was going to run a car for our sponsor's son. And it was going to be a one-car team, you know, very low-key. But then it quickly became two, then three, then four. And now we're buying a truck and we've got a workshop. And it literally Amazing. exploded overnight. So, uh, you know, it's definitely where my passion lies in helping young kids coming through. And I, I can't wait to see where that goes. That's super cool. Very, very exciting indeed. Um, who's the best driver you've ever shared the tarmac with? Ooh, you know what? I've had a lot of really, really good teammates. You know, been to Tagliani, Takuma Sato, who went went and won the five hundred. Yeah. But I'm going to say somebody really obscure, um, like Alvaro Corrente in yep. the McLaren year. You know, even when I was in IndyCar with Sato, you know, he was one of the the front runners and won races. I never really felt like. I mean, I always felt like I could beat those guys. You know, given time, and there were sessions even in the Indy 500 and the GP where I was quicker than, than those guys. But Alvaro Parente, for me, he was just on another level. Like when you feel like you've done your best lap and you come in feeling happy and you see the data and he's two times quicker than you or three times quicker <clears throat> and you just don't know how. Literally, you can't explain it. He's just quicker. Yeah. For me, that was the first time I've ever felt about a driver thinking, wow, yeah, he, he's he's just good. Yeah, that's that's very cool. And then taking it to the other end of the scale, I suppose, um, now that you're involved in in helping bring young drivers through, is there anyone that we should be keeping our eye on as fans who who is going to be the next big thing that you've seen coming up through the ranks? Well, shit, at the moment, no. There's no one who I'm working with right now who, in fact, you know, they're all older guys at the moment. Right. I think the one... Who I'm really proud about is Kelvin. Obviously, you know he's coming from where he came from, and you know, getting the stick that he got in in touring cars, and just kind of showcasing him to the world, and really show showing people that actually this kid is really really good. He's not bad looking. He's marketable. He's a really really good guy. He's just you hate him, don't you? He's just got everything. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he can dance. When we met him, he was annoyingly yeah. nice. Yeah, so annoyingly he's, nice. <laughs> just hate he's just. He's got a he's six got a pack. Dog. He's got dancing. Yeah. He's got a six pack. <laughs> you, you just want to, you just want to hate him, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, that is impressive to see, you know. And it's and it's great what the journey that you've you've gone on with him as well. Um, having obviously took part in a lot of different racing series, as I said earlier. Are you do you watch racing series as well on the TV? Are you a fan as well? And if so, is there, do you still watch things like IndyCar? Or are you a fan of Formula One on the TV, or do you not really bother bother yourself watching those kind of things? It's where you know. Like, Growing up, watching Formula One was you know, was the passion and the dream. And then I think after those 30 years and that, you know, being close to Formula One and being jaded by it, I just lost interest in it. So I didn't watch F1 for a good 10 years. It just didn't feel good anymore. So I didn't even pay attention to it. And it's only now that I'm so far removed from it 
that I'm now starting to take interest and get excited, you know, watching these young kids come through, like, you know, Norris and Verstappen. Mm. It, it's now, I'm now a fan of the sport again, whereas mm. before it felt like I was the jaded, you know, stepsister in a way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but, but yeah, it, it's, it's funny. It's fun to watch F1 again now. Um, we have three final questions that we ask of all our guests and you are no exception. So, um, Harry, do you want to kick off with number one? Yeah, let's do it. Um, Plowy, what's got you excited at the moment? Right now, I'm excited to get back racing, but only when it's safe to do so, of course. You know, for me, the idea of racing under lockdown just doesn't appeal to me. You know, yeah, of course, I want to be in the car and going fast. But racing's about entertainment and putting on a show for fans. And the idea of just being in an empty track doesn't feel that good. So mm. I'm really excited about being at a track with fans, meeting meeting those who are passionate about the sport, you know, taking pictures and just being out there and having fun again. Great. Um, if not doing what you are doing, being a very quick racing driver, what would you be doing? I don't know. I think a lot of people say the same thing as me. I don't know. I don't have a lot of skills in anything else. So I'd probably be doing a pretty mundane nine to five job, you know, working at McDonald's maybe. Um, Big Mac meal. Honestly, honestly, I don't know. I don't want this to sound like come across as arrogant, but when you growing up, there was never a thought of doing anything else. Yeah. It was only racing. Yeah. And, I still feel like I'm pretending, you know, this still feels like this is just a pipe dream that one day I'll, I'll wake up. But for the last 20 years or so, it's just keep your head down. You keep chasing that dream, you know, keeping your head down and just, you know, it still feels like a dream right now. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. That's incredible. And final question then, you can be as philosophical or as trivial as you like. What are you scared of? Ooh. You know what? It's oddly, I'm not scared of dying, which is a bit of, you know, morbid to say, you know, being in the spot we are, but I think I'm scared of failure and scared of letting the people around me down. You know, there's been so much sacrifice, you know, within the family and friends, they're literally giving up their whole lives to see me achieve my, my dream. So I, I guess my, my fear is just letting them down. You know, I never ever want to feel like I'm taking this opportunity for granted. And I just want to make them proud. So that, that's my biggest fear. What an amazing way to end on. Martin Plumman, thank you so much for coming on to the Motormouth podcast this week. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. You too. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me, having me on the show. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and on Facebook just search Motormouth you can download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV create your own social profile and interact with others and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the Motormouth podcast we here at Motormouth are a small, independent team. Since starting this podcast just over a year ago, we're reaching over 15,000 of you across 30 countries around the world. Uh, we want to bring the biggest names in motorsport to you. Find out about their lives and careers and have a chat about whatever is going on in the motorsport world. We are determined to carry on producing these episodes. However, they do come at a cost. From securing guests to equipment and editing software and expanding the podcast and app, that's why we've set up a Patreon page where you can help us to carry on doing what we do. 
There are three levels at which you can contribute, starting from £5 a month to £10 or £20. Each tier allows you slightly different levels of access. Depending on which one you choose, you can enjoy early access to podcast episodes, exclusive member benefits, merchandise, shout-outs, and your chance to feature on one of our shows. Any support you can give us is massively appreciated and will help us grow and continue to bring cool content to race fans all over the world.